say here over and over the years is that we don't teach around tough topics, we teach through them. Uh, the Bible says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So even the challenging passages, the challenging topics, I told you we're going to talk about end times and we're going to talk about uh, women in ministry, we're going to talk about abortion, and my wife leaned up and said, hey, while you're up there, why don't you bring up gun control as well, that'd be a real home run, right? <laughs> So we've been in a series, if you're new and you're a guest here at Liberty Heights, it's a little different, a little disclaimer I gave a few weeks ago. Uh, every year in the summer, we take two or three weeks and we do a series called Ask Anything, where we let the church, all campuses submit questions and then we teach through those questions. Now, we can't ever get through all the questions. We always have way more questions submitted than we have time to teach through. And so uh, as I told you a couple weeks ago, if you had a question and we'd have time to get to the teaching, if you want to email us. After the series is over, one of our pastors will respond uh, to your questions. So this morning, uh, I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles for a starting point. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And so on my teaching outline, I've got four questions here that I want to try and get through. Uh, when I look at the word count of my manuscript, I'm guessing uh, we're only going to probably get through three of them uh, this morning. We'll just go as far as we can and do the best we can this morning. And so uh, one of the questions that came up. Uh, in, in this uh, series has been simply this uh, that I want to teach you as kind of the starting point today in relation to the end times. Now, as world events stir, uh, for 20 years, whenever that's happened, people have always approached me and said, hey, are we living in the last days? Is you know, all this stuff that's going on all over the world? And so uh, that question is, always comes up. And so I want to teach through that uh, as well this morning. Uh, and so the questions about abortion, we planned that four weeks ago when all the questions came in. Uh, we had no idea what the Supreme Court was going to uh, do this weekend. So while we rejoice in that, we're not teaching his response to that. We plan to teach through this uh, four weeks ago. So again, we're going to hit some barn burners today, all right? So the first question uh, is relation to the end times. And here's the question that came in. Is the rapture pre or post-tribulation, regardless of pre or post, can the left behind be saved? Right? What a great question. So now I realize that for some of you, uh, when I use the phrase pre or post-tribulation, you're nervous. Not because you think you're wrong, but because you're, you're skeptical that maybe I just spoke in tongues, right? You're like, I don't know what that means. I don't know what you're even talking about, some of those phrases. And so, so before I can answer the question about the timing of the rapture, uh, let me just give you a, a little framework for the end times in general, because if I don't do that, then some of what I'm going to teach, you're not even going to have a framework to understand what we're talking about. And so, but I'm going to start this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. So you should know this, that is probably the most prominent passage in the New Testament that teaches the idea of the rapture. So that's what I want to start there today, okay? So 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. But we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And sleep, there's a euphemism for death, okay? So that you may not grieve as others who do, do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, 
will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, full disclosure, the word rapture does not occur in the Bible. Okay? But the concept is clearly taught in the scriptures. The word rapture, it literally means to be caught up or a catching up is what it, uh, it literally means. And so that's the language of verse 17. Look at it again. Caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, before we get too technical uh, in our theology, let me make a general statement. If someone who's a Christian or maybe some Bible teacher or pastor you like, you listen to, if they disagree with you on the end times timeline, that does not make them a heretic or a false teacher, all right? Uh, this is an issue that lots of people disagree about who love the Lord, who have a high view of Scripture, who are conservative in their theology. Let me give you a little example. Two of the most well-known Bible teachers in modern American uh, culture are John Piper and John MacArthur. Both have a high view of Scripture. Both believe in the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. Both of them will be theologically conservative, and they disagree on the timing of the Lord's return. So, not heretics, not false teachers for those who disagree with that. We can partner with, fellowship with those who disagree with us on this theological issue. So, that's a little disclaimer, all right? And the study of the end times is known as eschatology. And the word eschatology literally means the doctrine of last things. And so from a technical sense, the end times clock started ticking when Jesus ascended into heaven. And so when people ask me, like, are we living in the last days from a theological perspective? Yes, that clock began ticking when Jesus ascended into heaven. The last days clock began ticking. And the catalytic event that triggers the final events is obviously the return of Christ. And so when we talk about the return of Christ, here's what I want you to understand. There are two terms you have to be familiar with. Uh, number one is the rapture, and number two is the second coming. Now, if you're listening, say amen. The rapture is when the saints are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. What's being described there in verse 17, a catching up to meet the Lord in the clouds is what verse 17 uh, describes. The second coming is when Christ comes back and sets up his literal kingdom called the millennium for a thousand-year reign on the earth with the saints. And that thousand-year reign is what's known as the millennial reign of Christ. If you say, well, I've never heard of that. Where's that in the Bible? It's in Revelation chapter 20. It talks about this thousand-year reign of Christ. And so, now, what precedes that thousand-year reign of Christ is a period of incredible upheaval on the earth that is known as the tribulation. And so where do we find the tribulation being taught in Scripture? Revelation chapter 4 all the way through chapter 19. How many of you would say this? For the most part, I think the book of Revelation is incredibly confusing. How many of you would say that? Right, yeah, lots of you. So here's the reality. The book of Revelation is actually organized pretty simple. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, he says, Hey, John, write the things which are, the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will be. That's a threefold division of Revelation. All right, so the things which... You have seen or are or the things going on, and the things which will be starts in chapter 4. And so that's a futurist view of the book of Revelation. And so, Revelation chapter 4, uh, verse 19, or chapter 4 through chapter 19, is that period known as the tribulation period. Now, most scholars would argue 
That's a period of seven years. And so when someone says, regarding the rapture, I believe in a pre-tribulation, pre-millennial view of the end times, what they're saying is this, that I believe the rapture will take place, and after that, prior to the tribulation, there'll be seven years of tribulation or great upheaval on the earth, and at the end of that seven years, Christ will return to set up his literal kingdom. So that's what they mean when they say, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture and a pre-millennial rapture. When a person says, hey, I, I hold to a mid-trib rapture, what they're saying is this. I believe the rapture is going to happen at the midpoint of the great tribulation. Now, the Bible does say this in regarding the tribulation. It describes tribulation and great tribulation for the second half. So it does get worse. And so some people say, hey, God's promised to spare the church or the saints from the great tribulation. So they think the rapture is going to happen at the midpoint. And the others would say, I believe in a post-trib rapture. And here's what they think. That at the end of the seven years, that's when the rapture is going to happen. And so the reality is simply this. Here's the difference. All right, let me make this as simple as I can. Those who hold to a pre-tribulational rapture of the end times believe that the rapture happens, the catching up of the saints in the air, and then seven years of tribulation on the earth, and then after that, Christ will descend for his second coming to set up his literal thousand-year reign known as the millennium. Those who hold to a post-tribulational rapture, here's what they believe, that the rapture will happen at the end of those seven years, and what happens is that the church is raptured or caught up in the air with Jesus Christ. And immediately after the catching up and the meeting of Christ in the air, immediately the church in Christ descends and sets up his millennial kingdom. Right? So that's what those differences uh, in all of that means. Now, people usually ask me, they say, hey, you're the pastor. What do you think the Bible teaches? All right, let me just give this humble disclaimer. Anybody that disagrees with me is free to be wrong. All right? I just want to share that in all humility. Okay? So I think that uh, exegetically, when I dig in the text, that the weight of Scripture is on a pre-trib or mid-trib rapture. I think that's the weight of Scripture, even though the weight of church history is not a pre-trib rapture. It's a little newer in the thought of church history. So let me tell you why I think that is. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, is teaching a rapture with no connection to the second coming here. He's describing this as a separate, standalone event here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me give you another proof. Uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, the church is never mentioned past chapter 3. So the first three chapters, he talks about the church at Laodicea and all, all these churches in Asia Minor that are seven churches uh, in the book of Revelation. And then starting in chapter 4, the church is never mentioned again. And so why do we think that is? Well, what happens in chapter 4 that I told you earlier? That's when the tribulation happens. And so if the church is never mentioned again from chapter 4 on to the book of Revelation, what that tells me is that the church has already been raptured out before the uh, tribulation actually happens. And listen to the promise given in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. In other words, you've proved your profession is genuine. Okay, saving faith is always persevering faith okay so because you've kept my word about patient endurance I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth so I believe that scripture teaches the hour of trials either the tribulation or the great tribulation 
And the judgment is reserved, what's he say in Revelation 3.10? For those who are on the earth. Who would no longer be on the earth would be those who have been raptured out already. And so I believe that in between the rapture and the second coming, two separate events, the judgment seat of Christ or the bema seat takes place. I believe that Revelation chapter 19 verses 7 through 10 describe the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think that takes place after the rapture of the church while the saints are in heaven before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And I think that the great white throne judgment, which is judgment for unbelievers, happens at the end of the tribulation. Now, does scripture teach that people can still be saved who have been left behind? Uh, I believe the scripture does teach that. In the tribulation period, those who finally come to a place and say, hey, maybe this was true, right? In that moment, in order for them to be saved, the scripture says they'll have to refuse the mark of the beast. And so literally, they'll have to give their lives for their profession of faith. They'll be martyrs. And so I think there'll be people saved during the tribulation who refuse the mark of the beast. But what about during the thousand-year reign of Christ? Because here, here's the reality. If our theology is correct and the great white throne judgment happens at the end of the tribulation before the second coming, then that means that everybody who goes into the millennium is saved. Listen to what David Jeremiah said. I, I totally agree with his theology on this. He says some people find it surprising to think of rebellion during the millennium. Because if you read the, the Bible, the Bible says it's at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ. There will be a final great falling away. Is what will happen. So some people, he says, find it surprising to think of rebellion during the millennium. But here's how it will happen. Everybody who goes into the, the millennium will be righteous. They'll all be saved. But during that 1,000 year period, there will be marriages. There will be people, children born. And some of those children will rebel against the things of God. Just like today, each person born during the millennial age will make a personal decision for or against Jesus Christ. And so, if you ever hear people say this, well, I think if what's wrong with people is they don't have wicked hearts, they're just in bad environments. Listen, in the Garden of Eden, it was a perfect environment and wicked hearts prevailed. At the thousand-year reign of Christ, Christ will rule and reign with the saints in a perfect environment. And guess what? Wicked hearts will still prevail. Listen, the problem in our culture is not the culture around us. The problem is our wicked hearts that we need transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anybody disagree? Guess not. All right. So, do I think that people can be saved who are left behind? Yes. Do I think the rapture happens before the tribulation, or, or maybe there's some argument for the mid-tribulation, yes. Do I think the rapture and the second coming are two separate events? One's the catching up in the air. One is Christ ascending and setting up his kingdom on the earth. Yes, I believe all of those things as well. Second question. When a Christian woman is under the church and the pastor, uh, what is biblical in areas of leading, teaching, counseling, being missionaries, baptizing, uh, all those kinds of things? Listen, this is a, this is a great question. Uh, many churches and denominations are uh, sorting through this. Uh, with a lot of vigor uh, because of some of what's going on in the culture around us. And, and what I mean by that is this, is that culture around us uh, is uh, shifting more towards women empowerment, which we're for in, in many regards. Hear me say that clearly, all right? And so the question becomes is how does culture affect the church? How does culture affect the church? Well, the short answer is this. Culture 
shouldn't affect the church and its doctrine and practice because the church is not built on culture. The church is built on the scriptures. Listen, the whole problem in 1 Corinthians that Paul was addressing to the church at Corinth was they were letting the culture determine the doctrine and practice of what was going on in the church. Over and over, chapter after chapter, he says, hey, I know what's going on around you in culture, but you've let that creep in the church, and culture doesn't dictate the church. Scripture dictates the church. And so, we want to be observant of culture when cultural shifts, because it forces us to analyze our doctrine, our teachings, uh, our practices. And so let me uh, give you some, some teaching and some answers to this question. Uh, first is setting a foundation. First off, uh, we are in the of the scripture. We would affirm male headship in the home and in the church. Now, I realize that's a, a loaded statement. Lots of inferences can be drawn from that. So let me be a little bit more clear. We do not affirm domineering headship. We reject all forms of abuse and spiritual pride in the church and in the home. Let me say that clearly. We affirm that Jesus is the head of the church and he is masculine. We affirm that God's church is the bride of Christ and essentially the church is Jesus' female counterpart in the language of scripture in the book of Ephesians particularly. And so we see this model uh, set before this in scripture and we see it played out in church with God's design to have male pastors lead the church and the home as God appoints male husbands to lead their families according to Ephesians chapter 5. And so what does that look like? Well, listen, let me say this clearly. Men are to lead in these environments by mirroring Jesus Christ. They're to be loving and kind and truth-tellers and servants and prayerful and wise in how they lead. Listen, if anybody ever teaches you that Jesus did not value or elevate the role of women, rest assured that is a person who's never actually read the Bible for themselves and instead found that answer on Google. Jesus was constantly... Valuing women, elevating the value of women in a culture that they were incredibly devalued. And I've talked through that over the last couple of weeks multiple times. And so why we believe in headship for, for men in the church and the home, uh, it is not a domineering, it is a servant, prayerful, kind, modeling Christ in those relationships. So, so let me just set that as a foundation. So the question becomes, what's your view of women in ministry? Well, here's what we believe. We believe the Bible from Genesis through the epistles declares God's design for men and women, and here's what we think the Bible teaches, that men and women are equal in regards to both made equally in the image of God, both equal image bearers. But we also believe the Bible teaches that while men and women are created equal in the image of God, they have done so with differing roles according to God's design for the home and for the church. Now that theology is called complementarian, where they have different roles, but those roles complement each other, but both of them are equal in the eyes of God in regards to the image of God. If anyone ever teaches or preaches or shares with you that somehow women are not equal in the image of God, mark that person down as a false teacher and probably an abuser. And so we teach equal in regards to essence, but differing in regards to roles. And one of the roles we see reserved for males in the scripture is that of elder or pastor. We see those as interchangeable terms. So... Let me walk you through a couple scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 3 says this, Therefore an overseer, elder, pastor, bishop, is the word there, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, 
not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, uh, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Verse 5, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And so the word he uses here uh, is describing uh, is the role of an elder or pastor is that of overseer. Uh, sometimes in some translations it's translated bishop. The word bishop is the Greek word episkopos, and it literally means overseer. And so when he studies out, what he's saying, this is a pastor or elder. Those are synonymous terms in Scripture. And so what he's describing here is simply this. There is an office of pastor, and there is a function of overseer. And so what we say here is that pastors oversee discipline, direction, and doctrine is the role of a pastor or an elder. And so this text describes who an elder is. It describes their character. It describes their role. And I want you to notice two things here in this passage. Number one, the overseer or pastor described here uh, is male. He describes him as the husband of one wife. And now listen, we could discuss that in length. Does that mean he has been divorced? He's never been divorced? What, well, there's all kinds of debate about that. And so we have time to untangle all that. But what he says here clearly is the pastor is a he. He must manage his household well. And then in verse 2, uh, one of his roles is expressed. And what he says here uh, is this. He is able to teach. The pastor is one who authoritatively, under God, submitted to the scriptures, teaches and preaches God's word when the church is gathered together for doctrinal instruction. So he's the one setting doctrine, defending doctrine, and teaching the word of God to the church. And so that gets us to the piece of the authority and some of the reasoning behind it. So here's what we would describe. That the function, teaching, and the office, pastor, are synonymous. Those are the same thing. The function and te the teaching is the function, and the function is the teaching of the role of the pastor. And so what does he describe in regards to that office or the function of teaching and doctrinal instruction in Scripture? First Timothy chapter 2 says this. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Can I get amen? It's all right if you're scared of your wife. That's totally fine, all right? Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, let me just, uh, all joking aside, he's not saying that a woman can't ever speak in church. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that women can pray and prophesy, and prophesy is not proclaiming or predicting truth, it's proclaiming truth as the church is gathered. So complete silence is not what's in view here. Uh, what we do see is that women were not allowed to exercise authority over man in a teaching or doctrinal capacity. The only authority a pastor has, listen to this, the only authority a pastor has is when he's speaking on behalf of God from the scriptures. I have no authority here except when I'm speaking on behalf of God from the scriptures. That's it. God is a God of order and that's how he's ordered his church. Listen to verse 13. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And so he's describing that, that God has a creation order for men and women, both in the home and in the church, and both equal the image of God, but both have differing roles. And the distinction of roles is that men are to be elders and pastors and the responsibility of teaching doctrine when the church is gathered. Now, second part of the question was this. Uh, can women lead, teach, counsel, baptize, be missionaries, uh, all in the blank? So here's, here's our position, okay? Uh, women can lead worship through music. That's not a teaching role. Uh, women can pray. Uh, women can be ushers. I remember my first church, 
uh, someone said, hey, what about this person? I said, what about this lady for an usher? We don't have women ushers here. And I said, well, I, like, you know, I'm 25 years old, and so I'm like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, well, they said, because the ushers come forward, and they, pastor calls on one of the ushers to pray over the offering. And I said, oh, so you're not against a women usher. You're against a woman praying over the offering. Yes. And I just said, I didn't know you couldn't ask honest questions. I was only 25. And I just said, hey, okay, where's that at in the Bible? No one had any answers. There's no ushers in the Bible. Right? Now, I don't know if there'll be ushers in heaven. Amen? I don't know. And so sometimes playing this out, these principles out, in life in the church, sometimes we don't know because the Bible doesn't speak to it. I've had people say, hey, can, can women teach students in the student ministry? Listen, the Bible doesn't speak about student ministry. It talks about discipling all ages. So, so sometimes we, we don't know what the application always looks like. But when we look at the role of teaching doctrine and discipline, those things, uh, we would say women can lead worship through music. Women can pray. Women can be ushers. Women can teach other women. Uh, women can teach children. Women can teach and share in life group environments as the church is scattered. Uh, women can lead outreach initiatives. Uh, we have a woman counselor on staff. Uh, we support and send out women missionaries in our missions budget. Uh, we have uh, women who serve on our executive staff. We have women who serve on our administrative team. And so here's what we would say, that only those roles that are ordained by the church are those reserved for men. Now here becomes a natural question. So, so I get the argument for pastors and elders and and all that kind of stuff, but, but there's a lot of debate about this. What about Christians who disagree on whether or not a woman can be a deacon? Okay? Now, I don't know if there's anyone more theologically conservative in modern Bible uh, scholarship than uh, pastor and author John MacArthur. And if you think that he's not, just ask him. He'll remind you that he is the most conservative Bible teacher out there. All right? John MacArthur in his church has women deacons. And so where do they base that teaching on? Romans chapter 16 is the majority of it. Romans chapter 16, Phoebe is described, Paul commends Phoebe as a servant to the church. That word servant in the English, in the Greek, is the word diakonos. The word diakonos is translated into English. It's the same word translated as deacon in the New Testament. Now here's where the debate and argument comes down. Uh, was Phoebe fulfilling the function of a deacon, serving others, or was she fulfilling the office of a deacon? That's where the debate comes down to. Uh, I would argue she's serving the function and not the office because when the Bible describes the office of a deacon, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, it describes him, male, as the husband of one wife. And so I would argue that one is the role or function and one is actually the office, but there's debate there uh, for sure. So we're for women in leadership, but we believe there are differing roles in the home in church. Let me say this again. Both equally created in the image of God. Okay? So we're all for women in ministry. We just think there's certain results, uh, res roles reserved uh, for pastors in the home and in the, the church. Right? Let me just say one more statement and we'll move on. Leadership in the home. Leadership in the home, guys is a responsibility to uphold, not a right to demand. Let me say that again. It was a good place for an amen. The ladies missed it, all right? Leadership in the home is a responsibility to uphold and not a right to demand. All right. 
So just in case someone's not offended yet, let's move on to question three. <laughs> I just, I look over these questions four weeks ago, and I begin to question if the church really loved me or not. Like, let's just find the most controversial, hot-button topic, you know, that we can just teach through. And so, but, all right. So question three, and we'll probably, uh, probably won't get to question four, probably. All right, question three. How can Christians in uh, Liberty Heights Church defend the rights of the unborn and love on those who have had uh, an abortion? Now, obviously, we, we planned this out three or four weeks ago. We knew what the conversations were going on about the Supreme Court. We had no idea that decision was going to uh, land on Friday, so we're not teaching in response to that. Uh, we plan to teach this three or four weeks ago, but we're grateful that in the heightened awareness of that, uh, we can speak into that with biblical truth and the timing of that. So this is a great question, and here's why. Most of the wrangling on the issue of abortion is played out and dealt with politically instead of biblically. And let me just say this up, up front. Christians are guilty of that as well. So my counsel on the front end is, you, wherever you land this position, is that it would be because you're informed by Scripture and not your political affiliations. Okay? So we deal with this out of a biblical worldview, and then we align our politics under the lens of our faith, not the other way around. And so in our worldview that's to be shaped by Scriptures, not our political affiliations, uh, that's what we have to wrestle through. The first question is that. Is your view of abortion... Shaped by one of three things. And everybody in the room, no matter what you believe about abortion, listen, it's shaped by one of three things. It's either shaped by scripture, it's shaped by your, uh, your own wisdom, or it's shaped by your political affiliation. Okay, that's the primary shaping force. No matter where you land, that's the primary shaping force. Either scripture, or your political affiliation, or your own wisdom. Okay? So that's the important question behind the question is, what's shaping your worldview? Now, before I talk about how we defend the rights of the unborn and love those who've had an abortion, let me talk about the why we should defend the unborn. Let me start off by first examining from the Bible the term for baby in the Bible to see if there's distinction in the Bible between a child that's out of the womb and a child that is still in the womb. In both the Old and New Testament, there is no distinction made between pre-born and post-birth life in the words that are used. As a matter of fact, they're the exact same words with no distinction at all in the original language. Let me give you some examples. In Genesis chapter 25, we read the words uh, or the account of Rebekah being pregnant with Jacob and Esau. And it says, the babies jostled within her. The word there for babies is the same word chosen under the inspiration of God as the word used for already born children. Uh, Hosea chapter 12, verse 3 says, In the womb he, Jacob, grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. There's no distinction in the original language. Luke chapter 18, verse 15. It says, And they were bringing even the babies to him in order that he might touch them. That word babies there in the original language is the same word that's in Luke chapter 1, verse 41, which says this, And it came about that when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting... The baby, same word in the Greek, left in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so in both cases in Scripture, whether it's in the womb or a baby that's outside the womb, the same word, a baby, there in the Greek, is brephos. And the term is used to describe in Scripture both preborn 
and post-born life as well. And some people would argue and say, well, they, they probably weren't aware of the difference between a baby and a fetus. Listen, that's the whole point. To them, there was no distinction. But also, I would argue that whether the audience knew the term difference between baby and fetus, they're not the author of the Bible. God is. And I'm arguing that God knows the term and in inspired text, he used words that have meaning. Let's let scripture inform our thoughts. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5. Let's look at this for a minute. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So what do we see? We see God interacting with people pre-birth. We see God knows Jeremiah pre-conception. He formed Jeremiah. He knew Jeremiah. He had a purpose and plan for Jeremiah's life. At the point of conception, even before conception. Listen to the words of Psalm 139. Psalm 139 says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, what does that mean? Where people couldn't see. Where can you not see a baby being made at? In the womb. Right? From the human eye perspective. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, which is poetic language in the Hebrew for the womb as well. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book uh, were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me when as yet there were none of them. So let me give you a quick bullet point outline of Psalm 139 in the case for conception. Number one, what we see in verse 13 is that God's care begins at conception. David uses two phrases to illustrate God's care for the unborn. The first, he says, you have possessed my reins. The reins is describing the seed of sensation and feeling as well as that of desire and longing. Poetically, it's used as the inner nature of a person. It's what we would call the inner man. And so what he's saying is, hey, even before my outer man was fully formed, you cared, you possessed the reins and the forming of the inner man or the soul. And so God's involved in crafting uniqueness of the human spirit or soul of every single individual. The second phrase, he said, you have covered me in my mother's womb, actually means to interweave or to knit together. So, so what's being formed there? It is a God who is sovereign and all-powerful. It is not a chromosome collision that's taking place. He said God is at work orchestrating all of these events with his omnipotent sovereignty. No room for, for mistake, theologically. In the character of God. Second thing we see in Psalm 139 is God's sovereignty is displayed at conception. Verse 14, he says, fearfully. Now, what does that mean? It means God is skillfully forming that person with reverence. And so when you take a God whose motivation is reverence and a God who is sovereign and omnipotent, what you see is, hey, his intent is reverent and his power is unlimited. There is no theological margin again for mistake in conception. God's sovereignty is displayed at conception. The third thing we see in Psalm 139 is God's plans begin at conception. Now, Jeremiah makes the argument God's plans begin before conception. But even if you want to cast out that argument, so I don't know that I totally agree with that, at the very least, Psalm 139 says God's plans begin at conception. I love the 
Living Bible paraphrase of verse 16. Listen to what it says. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. And so does a desire that God has for each life begin once the baby is born or does it start earlier than that? Listen, go back to verse 15. Verse 15 says, in the lowest parts of the earth you formed me. What is that? In Hebrew poetry, that's symbolic for the womb of a mother. What's verse 16 say? Before I was born. And so the Bible's clear about God's care and involvement at conception. Can I go over for a few minutes today? Is that okay? Yeah, that's totally rhetorical because I'm going to anyway, all right? So, so, so because here's an issue that we have to deal with. Because there's this scenario of disagreement, even among Christians. And some people would say this, that, hey, listen, I believe that life begins at conception. I'm morally opposed to abortion as a Christian. But in a democratic society... I think people should have the right to choose because I don't want a Muslim theology to drive my decision just like I don't think Christian theology should drive the decision. So they would say, hey, I'm a Christian. I'm morally opposed to this. I think it's wrong. I think it's a sin. I think life begins at conception. But in a democratic society, people should have the right to choose apart from religious coercion. Matter of fact, that was the argument made, if you remember this, uh, in the debate between vice presidential candidates uh, Mike Pence and Tim Kaine. Both professing Christians, and Tim Kaine said, hey, I'm a Christian. I think I'm morally opposed to abortion. I think it's wrong. I think life begins at conception. But in a democratic society, I think people should be able to make that choice apart from religious coercion for those who don't believe. So it's a real question. Good question to deal with. So, so uh, let me just walk through that, okay? Let me speak to that. Number one, if you believe that life begins at conception, the Bible teaches it does. I just taught through several verses where the Bible clearly teaches that. Then what you are saying is this, and advocating for the choice of the mother at the expense of the choice of the child is this. While I'm personally against the unjust taking of a life, which is the biblical definition of murder, I think that other people should get to make that choice to unjustly take the lives of other people. There's no consistency in that argument. There's no consistency at all in that argument. If life begins at conception, then we have to advocate for those whose lives are unjustly being taken. We seek justice for those experiencing injustice, both the born and the pre-born. And I've said this openly, I don't care if it offends people, quite honestly. I think the Republicans have done a good job advocating for the life of the unborn, and at times at the expense of those who have been born, and I think the other side has got it totally reversed. I think there's work to do in a biblical worldview on both issues, issues that we're caring for both the born and the unborn. We're advocating for justice for everyone made in the image of God. Listen to Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. Ensure justice for those being crushed. Yes, speak up for the poor and helpless and see that they get justice. When Jesus said, love your neighbors yourself, he's quoting Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19 is an entire chapter about seeking justice for those experiencing injustice. And that's true for both the born and the preborn. That's a biblical pro-life ethic. Womb to tomb. I'm for life. Now, here's the second question, though. In the argument of, hey, I'm, I'm personally morally opposed to abortion, but I think other people should have the right to choose, even though I think it's a sin. Uh, here, here's the thing. So the question is not, do I have a biblical view of life? Here's the second question. Do I have a biblical worldview of government? So what do I mean by that? That if life begins at conception, and a person says, I believe that, Therefore, I'm morally opposed to abortion. But I think the government should let other people choose. Here, here's the disconnect. 
You can't just have a biblical worldview of life. You also should have a biblical worldview of government. And what does the Bible teach is the role of government according to Romans chapter 13? It's to wield the sword against injustice. And so if life begins at conception, then the biblical worldview of the government is to put a stop to the injustice of lives being taken made in the image of God. So let's not just have a biblical worldview of life. Let's have a biblical worldview for government. Let's just let's get out there. Let's have a biblical worldview for everything. And so there's the disconnect. You can have a biblical worldview of life and yet have no biblical worldview of what the role of the government is. Not, the government's not to promote morality. The government's to put down injustice is what Romans 13 says. And if life begins at conception, life is being unjustly taken, then the role of the government in a biblical worldview is to put down that injustice. So, how do we wrestle with all of this? That's our position, unapologetically. We've taught it before. It's not the first time we've taught this stuff. How do we love those who are seeking an abortion or have had an abortion? Uh, let me just, as quickly as I can. Uh, let me offer several things. Uh, number one, uh, being pregnant is not a sin. Having sex outside of marriage is. And so let's start there. Uh, because I think it would stop some of the shunning and shaming related to unwed pregnancy. Listen, if we're going to be consistent and march up young girls, unwed girls up in front of the church to publicly apologize, let's march up every kid who's having sex before they're married and let them apologize as well. And by the way, have you ever seen the boy have to come before the church and apologize well? I'm pretty sure he was there. Right? Some of you don't know that. That's a whole ser different sermon <laughs> later. All right? I've, I, listen, I've heard horror stories of girls being marched in front of them. I've never heard a boy have to stand up there and apologize. And again, he was there. He's guilty as well. So number one, let's start with that, that the sin is not being pregnant. According to statistics, that's just the person who got caught. The sin is sex outside of marriage. So let's start there with a biblical position. Secondly, I would offer this. Our churches to be so saturated by a culture of grace that flows out of repentance that women with an undesired or unplanned pregnancy's first thought should be that it's safer to run towards the church than away from it. Listen to this statistic. I, this, this is... Astounding and terribly sad to me. Eighty percent of women say they would not have chosen an abortion if they had felt more supported. Church, here's, here's what I'm telling you. We've got work to do. There's no place in the world that a woman who's considering an abortion or who's had an abortion should feel more love than the church of Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe that, you're at the wrong church. Christ fully died and satisfied the wrath of God over every sin, so abortion is not the unpardonable sin. And so to not receive God's grace is to actually proclaim that the work of Jesus was not powerful enough to cleanse every sin. And so how do we hold a high view of life, and a biblical worldview of life, and a, and a biblical worldview of government? But at the same time, love those 
who have considered and have actually made that choice. Folks, if the church of Jesus Christ is not a hospital for sinners, we're in trouble. Because I'm looking out at a bunch of them, and you're looking up at one of them. So we defend life. We have a high view of life. We defend the unborn. We have a biblical view of the role of governments to put down the injustice against the unborn. And when people sin and cross that boundaries, at the point of repentance, we extend grace and we receive them with the grace of God whose blood has cleansed every sin. We're out of time. Last question was this. Can a person keep on sinning and still be a Christian? The answer is no. Write that down, all right? So, hey, let's, let's pray together this morning, and uh, I'm going to pray specifically uh, towards that last question in light of all that's going on around us in culture. So would you bow your heads this morning? God, while we rejoice that government has formed its God, I pray that you would stir our affections, that there's so much more work to do now, that the church of Jesus Christ would lead the charge for fostering, for adoption, for resourcing pregnancy centers, and for coming alongside of women who find themselves in vulnerable positions and feel they have no other choice. God, I pray that from this day forward in this decision this weekend, that our church would be viewed as a place to run towards, not run away from, from those in vulnerable situations. And God, I pray for every person in this room dealt with the shame and battled the choice of abortion God that today they would finally and fully receive the grace of Jesus Christ and walk forward in the freedom of forgiveness your blood cleanses every sin and God we're grateful for grace because we are desperate and needy people. And so we ask that we would receive it, we ask that we would live in it, and we ask that we would extend it. We pray all these things in Christ's name.